thank you all for uh, uh, having me as part of the Socialism Conference. This is a, a very important conference, and I'm really glad that those of you who aren't already members of the Socialist Party are here, especially the younger people. I wanted to extend a warm welcome to you and also convey to you all the solidarity from Socialist Alternative in Seattle and in the US as a whole. And as many of you know, Socialist uh, Alternative is in solidarity with the Socialist Party of England and Wales and with the Committee of Workers International, Committee for Workers International. The, the question I think on everybody's mind is, can Trump be defeated? And I think we have to start with the most basic reality, which was reflected in the midterms that Josh, Josh mentioned. We don't believe that the US society is moving to the right as a whole since Trump's election, although there is no doubt a consolidation and hardening of a right-wing base. But I think this is a very, very important starting point for us, that the majority of the United States as proven through the election results just a couple of days ago, that the majority of the United States does not agree with the Trump right wing and the billionaire-backed agenda. And the larger picture is a deeper polarization in US society than seen in many of our lifetimes, and a radicalization towards both ends of the political spectrum, resulting from anger over the profound uh, social crisis and the inability of capitalism to meet the needs of working class and youth. And I think in the United States, in the belly of the capitalist beast, we have seen tectonic shifts in politics and in social organizing. We saw the colossal women's march after Trump was inaugurated, which was, by all accounts, the largest single day of protest in US history. We saw the high school students leading a tremendous uprising against gun violence on campuses. We've seen a record number of strike actions and strike authorization signaling the beginning of the rise of the mighty labor movement in the United States. We've seen the protests against the uh, appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, a reactionary to the US Supreme Court. And overall, we're seeing a deep crisis in both the bourgeois parties in the United States, both the Republicans and the Democrats. And the crisis they are in differs depending on which party you're talking about, but there is no question that as a whole, the majority of the United States, especially the millennial generation, is absolutely fed up with corporate politics, with a, a bankruptcy of any idea of, uh, of how to solve the situation that people are facing, which is economic stagnation, falling living standards, and the threat of climate change, not to mention uh, a, a nationwide sort of rise in consciousness among young people as to the question of how to fight oppressions like racism, sexism, and uh, you know, xenophobia and homophobia. I think the midterm election results are the most, probably the most important for us to discuss today, which I will go into a little bit, and I'm happy to answer whatever questions come up in the discussion. I think one of the key factors, though, in determining what will happen heading into the 2020 presidential elections is also the state of the US and global economy. 10 years after the Great Recession, once again, there are impending signs of economic problems. One clear example of the turbulence in the global and US economy and a sign of the near future was the stock market plunge on Wednesday, October 10th, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 832 points just a week after it had attained a record high. And bourgeois economists now, not just socialists, but bourgeois economists now are warning not only of a recession that is likely to happen soon, but the chances that, uh, that it will be a cataclysmic one. The question of the economic crisis will come up in the next few years, but obviously we don't know the exact timing or the specific trigger of the crisis, and how long Trump's base re will remain unshaken, how long his base stands with him, and whether or not he lasts as president until 2020. If he does last, will he win the 2020 elections? All of this at least partially hinges on the economic situation. The economy has been doing relatively well last year and this year. There's been a strength in job creation, which has been a critical factor in Trump's ability to maintain and harden his ardent base. I mean, he has taken 
uh, you know, uh, he has taken sort of exclusive credit for whatever uh, good science people have seen in the economy. But the strength of the economy has had another impact as well, which is increasing the willingness of unions and workers to engage in struggle. And there are many uh, really important examples of this. And so whether or not an economic crisis really unfolds be, uh, between now and 2020 will be a factor not only in determining Trump's base, but also in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in looking at what, what kind of actions workers will be taking uh, as a whole in general. We're also, we've also seen, and I just wanted to go a little bit into this, we've seen a real period of, of upheaval on women's issues given the massive anger and radicalization around Kavanaugh's protest, uh, especially, but situated in the larger question uh, that was brought forward by the Me Too collective struggle. And uh, the Kavanaugh protests were just one outgrowth of that. I'm gonna mention another one, I think that some of you might have heard about. But uh, what was interesting about the Me Too struggle against the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh this year was that it had a qualitatively different uh, approach from ordinary people, ordinary women, than even last year. The, the, the coming of Me Too str collective struggle itself was a turning point in some ways for uh, pe you know, ordinary people, especially young people in the US, to begin talking about uh, important questions around not only sexual violence, but also specifically workplace sexual harassment, which is a, an important question for us to uh, look at. Uh, but it's, but it, this is, uh, but around Kavanaugh, the protests that we have seen around the nation have actually taken on a much more grassroots and much more working class quality than we have seen before, even through the women's marches. So I would say that, you know, in numbers, the women's marches the day after Trump's inauguration were huge, because as I said, it was the largest ever protest day in history. But in terms of the political sharpness and um, the, the, the ability to raise larger questions, the protests against Kavanaugh, the street protests against Kavanaugh were, were, were decisively different. As a matter of fact, the protests that our members engaged in and intervened in, in Seattle, in Boston, in New York, were much more youthful and radical in character. There was a, a trend of anger against corporate feminism, rejecting the bankruptcy of those ideas that, you know, just. Uh, breaking the glass ceiling a little bit so that Hillary Clinton will be president or some more women CEOs will be appointed is not accepted by an increasing layer of women. I mean, obviously, this is not still the majority of young women, but you can see a current developing in, 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 in real, uh, you know, real rejection of the idea of uh, corporate feminism or as I, I would call liberal feminism. And uh, the, there was much more openness to a deeper understanding of oppression and how it connects to capitalism. I think perhaps the, the most important expression of what, uh, what potential there is to look at women's issues as a starting point and then give it a working class character as a, you know, a, something that can actually be addressed through collective struggle was 20,000 Google workers going on a one day work stoppage throughout the, throughout the world. I was about to say nation, but this was an in international worker uprising of sorts with 20,000 workers all the way from India, my home country, to Zurich, London, Dublin, and then coming to the US, New York City, Seattle, and also Mountain View, California, which is the headquarters of Google. And they walked out on very specific demands, one of those being an end to forced arbitration on uh, sexual harassment cases, which forces women uh, especially, but LGBTQ people also, which forces p workers to accept not being able to have any legal recourse, a real recourse against sexual harassment, which is the real, uh, which is which is what really needs to happen. And so, what was interesting about the Google strike was that one day strike was that they said they were inspired by Me Too. They said they were inspired by another one day work stoppage that happened in September that most of you might not have heard about which is a, a one day a walkout by McDonald's workers against sexual harassment. And in, this, in, and in many ways, that is far more significant because we're talking about uh, mostly women, mostly people of color, mostly very oppressed layers of workers deciding that they'd had enough. And they went out 
uh, using slogans like one Big Mac, extra cheese, hold the sexual harassment. And it's incredible to see that their action led to inspiring much more empowered, much better paid, college-educated PhD workers in Google. So I think it shows how social movements can have connections and, and can leak and can have a contagious effect in, uh, in, in, in ways, in, in not, not, not very straight lines, and in ways that you, can, uh, you, you won't be able to predict very easily. And that is why every struggle of workers is important, because you don't know what will come out of it. But this has only been one glimpse of what has happened as far as workers are concerned in the US. And I think that there's far bigger developments, not necessarily only on women's issues, but on workplace issues as a whole. And one of them has been a nationwide strike authorization and also partially strike action by hotel workers. And this has been nationwide. These are workers unionized with Unite Here who took extremely powerful strike authorization votes in multiple cities, including in, in, in Seattle. And in some of those cities, they actually went out on strike and they were able to win strong contractual improvements on the basis of, the, you know, of, of, of a willingness to actually take a strike action. But perhaps one of the most important indicators of the labor movement and in, in the United States and what potential it holds, because I know that given the conservative politics of the Democrats and Republican Party parties in the United States, it's, you know, it can be easy to dismiss what's happening in the US, but really there is a giant working class uprising waiting to happen and there are glimmers of hope. Obviously, there's a long way to go and we shouldn't read too much into it, but we should also not make the mistake of dismissing it because some key developments have happened this year. And if somebody were to ask me, what is the most critical political event that happened in the United States this year, I would say it, it was the teachers uprising in West Virginia. West Virginia, a state that is one of two states, West Virginia and Oklahoma, one of two states that uh, in which every county went to Trump in the general election in 2016. This is the state that has been dismissed as a red state full of, uh, you know, has been uh, smeared by uh, liberals in many other uh, cities as uh, just, uh, you know, just irrevocably red, irrevocably conservative, irrevocably right-wing. And this is the state in which the most important labor uprising happened this year. And it shows the potential for this being a historic turning point. And what was, what was important about this strike is that it has been led by rank-and-file leadership. In fact, in many ways, not only was it an uprising against the, what, what is handed down to workers today under US capitalism, but it was also an uprising against a defunct labor leadership at the top, because without that, they would not have won. And so I think if we pose ourselves the question, can Trump and the right wing and the billionaire agenda be defeated, then the question also translates into, can we see a real uprising in the US labor movement where the rank and file of US labor are actually able to push back against a, a, a bureaucratic agenda by many of the labor leaders who are tied at the hip with the democratic establishment? Can the rank and file actually do that? And I think West Virginia shows the potential for that because it is a classic example of a class struggle approach with rank and file leadership uh, you know, really uh, stressing unity among the ranks and standing up to union leadership, which is a fundamentally different leadership, uh, fundamentally different approach than we have seen for the last 50 years in the US, you know, the business unionism idea where you, you try to carve out a deal with the bosses rather than activating rank and file to win the best possible gains in every contract battle, but then broadening it into uh, becoming part of a, a broader worker struggle. And so just to quote the New York Times, which is not uh, a socialist bastion of media, but that's why it's important uh, to quote the New York Times. They say, with no collective bargaining rights, no contract, and no legal right to strike, the teachers had managed to mount a statewide work stoppage anyway, make their demands heard, marshal public support, and stick together until they won. And the rank and file not union leaders came to call the shots. So even the bourgeois media are recognizing that a critical component of this strike in West Virginia was that the rank and file refused to accept business unionist ideas. And in fact, 
uh, one of the unions that, you know, it's the National Education Association and the other union is the American Federation of Teachers. I'm a me member, I'm a, a rank-and-file member of the American Federation of Teachers, and we know through rank-and-file discussions that actually the leadership of those unions, the national and the statewide leadership of those unions was really pressuring the, uh, the rank-and-file leaders in the state to accept what the, what the rank-and-file said was a shoddy, lousy agreement with the Republican governor and refused to take it. And in fact, again, to quote the New York Times, they report that when the county level leader of the NEA, the National Education Association, you know, got about 150, 200 teachers, uh, teacher leaders together with her to say that, hey, our union leadership, you know, they're so great, they carved out a deal with the governor, now it's, it's our job to go and convince everybody to ratify that contract. Instead of getting acquiescence from the rank and file leaders, which the labor bureaucracy is used to, instead of that, her phone exploded with angry phone calls with rank and file leaders saying, what the hell are we doing? We can't go back now, uh, you know, we, we are going to hold the strike and that our union has sold, that sold us out. And they refused to take any sort of handshake with the Republican governor. And no matter what the union leader said, they were staying out until they got what they wanted in writing. And in fact, one of the key components of the uh, rejection of the deal that the union leaders had carved out was uh, the idea that the, only the teacher should get a raise and all other public employees should be left in the dark. And the teachers refused to accept that. They said, everyone's getting a raise and we're going to hold the picket line until all public employees are included in not only wage increases, but also for benefits. And at that meeting, the New York Times reports that the union head was reduced to tears as she was unable to convince the rank and file to accept the lousy deal. So I think that this shows the potential for, if there is rank and file militancy, the potential for labor struggles to develop in the United States. But at the same time, you know, a sober assessment of this also should tell us that unless they have real fighting strategies and tactics, unless the Marxist movement develops in labor, we will not be seeing a replication of what happened in West Virginia. But there are other glimmers of hope as well. And I think one of the things I'll mention, I, I won't go too much into the Seattle situation because of limited time, but uh, there, there are questions, I'm happy to answer them, but I'll go into a little bit uh, in, the, in the rally tonight. But just one thing I wanted to mention about Amazon is because it, it reflects on the potential for what can be done with, uh, you know, what, where workers can go in the US is, uh, it's, it's a good example because Amazon warehouse workers are not unionized. They don't have a union. They're extremely oppressed. They face some of the most exploitative working conditions in the warehouses. And it's true, of course, in Europe as well. And what we have seen is a real a beginning of a rising up of Amazon workers as well. And, and the US Amazon workers were not at the leadership of this, obviously, we've seen actions in Europe. We saw a strike uh, by Amazon warehouse workers in Spain. And so, you know, that is starting to come, that feeling of militancy, the feeling of not wanting to accept this richest man in the world telling you that you're going to have such abysmal conditions in your workplace that you won't even have time to take a bathroom break. You know, there's a real rejection of that ha starting to happen. And as a combination of the warehouse workers starting to speak out openly about their conditions and the tax Amazon struggle that Socialist Alternative led in Seattle. As a combination of those two things, Amazon, while it is still very much in power and we should be, you know, we should be very clear, this is the billionaire class we are going up against. So there is no room for complacency. At this moment, it's a David versus Goliath fight. But at the same time, the combined pressure of the warehouse workers speaking up and openly to the media and the tax Amazon struggle with socialist alternative uh, had a lot to do with the militant character of the struggle. Because of all these factors, Amazon was forced to concede a little bit, and I'm sure uh, you all heard that Amazon has now taken all its workers to $15 an hour. But what's again interesting, I want, you know, I want to go into this a little bit, when they announced the $15 an hour, they did a little bit of a, they tried to do a little bit of divide and rule by saying, that the $15 an hour raise for mostly the temporary and part-time workers will come at the cost of bonuses for full-time workers. Well, there was real anger among the full-time workers, and they said, this is nonsense. You know, you, 
you, you, can't, you can't get give raises to part-time workers on our backs. And there was so much of a conversation about it that a day later, Amazon had to, uh, was forced to withdraw that and say, okay, we're keeping the bonuses for all uh, full-time workers, but we will take all workers to $15 an hour. So these are small yet important examples of what can happen if there's a real uh, shaping of a working class character in the United States. And, and no doubt, our organization has a, has a big role to play in this. I just wanted to quickly switch to the discussion on the midterm elections because that is clearly a, a very important conversation for us to have. As Josh said, it was not the decisive blue wave that was predicted earlier, but at the same time, the pronounced anti-Trump sentiment should not be missed. Overall, it is very clear the election re results are a rejection of Trump by the American electorate. And what the election saw, especially in the final weeks, was Trump, you know, whipping up xenophobia, you know, in sort of ramping it up even for him, you know, even compared to his own uh, uh, sort of bigotry and, and just vile uh, demonizing of various sections of society. Even compared to that, it was ramped up. He mobilized his base by whipping up even great, more greatly the fear of immigrants using overt racism. <clears throat> Uh, one of the things he did was demonize the migrant caravan that is winding its way through Mexico right now. He called it an invasion of Mexicans in the United States. And uh, the other character of the midterm elections was mostly the democratic establishment focusing on rejecting hate, but not really explaining what that means, not taking up the, mostly not taking up the question of uh, healthcare, education, uh, jobs for working people with living wages, and many other issues that I will get into a little bit. But within the Democratic Party, there's another thing that is important to recognize here, is that there was a, a as big a wave as I've seen in my lifetime, you know, bigger than uh, in the last many years, uh, a real uh, resurgence of left and progressive candidates all standing as Democrats, and we have a disagreement with that, but it reflected the number of, the record number of women, the record number of teachers that ran in the election, the uh, record number of people that voted. I mean, the, the, despite the voter rep repression, widespread voter repression, in many districts, including King County, where Seattle is located, we had record historic uh, uh, levels of turnout, voter turnout, which shows the degree of anti-Trump sentiment. And among the progressive and left candidates, that ran in the midterms, you know, overall, I'm not just talking about US Congress, but also the state elections. The National Nurses United uh, did a survey and found that 52% of all candidates put forward the question of Medicare for all. So you saw both phenomenons together. You saw the Democratic establishment doing its business as usual agenda where uh, really not touching the working class issues with a 10 foot pole. And at the same time, within the Democratic Party, uh, a real uh, coming up of progressive and left candidates who are running on the Democratic uh, Party ticket but refusing the establishment agenda and really bringing up the question of a federal $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, and so on. And as you, many of you know, a number of self-described socialists won, uh, in, uh, including Julia Salazar, who's going to the New York State Senate, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's going to US Congress, and also Rashida Tlaib, who is also headed for Congress. And, uh, you know, Tlaib is also one of the two Muslim American women elected to Congress this year, which is a historic thing for US Congress. And I think that is one of the major components of change that is happening in the US. We're obviously, the labor upsurge, the question of women's issues and so on, but also the rise of socialist ideas. So when people wonder, you know, is America turning right wing, I would point towards the massive evidence of the millennial generation as a majority rejecting capitalism as a viable system and looking for alternatives, and the upsurge of socialist ideas, the increased openness as we have never seen before in our lifetimes, uh, openness to socialist ideas, and obviously people mean different things when they mean socialism, but one thing they do mean for sure is a rejection of the status quo, uh, uh, an understanding that the system as it's handed down to us today does not work and uh, a refusal to accept society that only offers low-wage jobs, hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, you know, now collectively student debt is over a trillion dollars in the economy, and it's one of the bubbles that is an indication of uh, a future economic collapse. Uh, a, a refusal 
to have a society that does not have solutions to climate change. And we saw really stark examples of climate change this year that uh, provoked a, a kind of thinking about it that I have not seen before. I mean, all along the West Coast, I mean, Seattle is on the West Coast, all along the West Coast, West Coast, all the way from Vancouver, BC, to Southern California, the whole summer this year was filled with unprecedented forest fires, which only a determined climate change deniers like Trump will not recognize that this is you know, related to climate change. And so it was a very live reminder to people that this defunct system does not offer us a solution. But what we're seeing right now is a period where uh, a whole generation and a majority of the Democratic Party's base reaching conclusions that the Democratic establishment is completely out of touch of. So we're seeing that disconnect, you know, sharpening more and more in, in society. And some of that unfolded in the elections as well. And so, and I'll go into that a little bit, but what's going to happen in the coming months is that both the Democratic leadership, which is out of touch with most of its base, and the new left candidates in, in the elected to Congress and the state legislatures are going to be put to the test of the rising expectations of their base and the demands to tr confront Trump and the ruling class on many different issues. To, to go into a little bit in terms of what limitations the democratic leadership has shown already, you know, to, to see you know, what are the signs of things to come. I think what happened with the Kavanaugh appointment itself is an example that despite deep anger against his appointment, especially after uh, Christine Blasey Ford courageously went, uh, you know, went public with her uh, accusations against, allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, allegations of uh, sexual harassment and attempted rape. Despite uh, young women, you know, really showing the willingness and the desire to have a real street fight on this and really call to question his appointment, the Democratic Party establishment and the women's organization, the large women's organizations that are tied to the democratic establishment, like NOW and NARAL and Planned Parenthood, refuse to really take up that fight. And aside from a little bit of combative questioning by the Democrats in the Senate Judi Judiciary Committee, the democratic establishment was missing in action on this issue. And in fact, until Christine Ford uh, actually went public, a whole section of the Democratic leadership was not even against Kavanaugh, in fact, promising that they were going to vote for him, uh, especially in the so-called swing, swing states. And so, the, you know, on the one hand, the demo, and this is the, this is the quandary that the Democratic establishment exists in, which is going to, you know, that, that is going to drive a wedge deeper and deeper into people's consciousness where, when they are more and more going to start thinking about whether or not the Democratic Party is a vehicle. And this is the quandary. On the one hand, they did very little, the leadership of the Democratic Party did very little to nothing to actually capitalize on the anger that existed, the genuine anger against Kavanaugh. They could have called for mass rallies. They could have called for work stoppages. They could have called for the occupation of senator offices. You know, Socialist Alternative was calling for that, but the Democratic establishment has the clout to actually make it happen. But they stayed away from that issue. On the other hand, they weakened themselves on the Kavanaugh issue. They weakened themselves by only focusing on the sexual harassment question rather than taking up the Kavanaugh appointment as a, as a broader question of a reactionary Supreme Court, which, you know, and, and putting, the, putting it to question, how is it that a small group of reactionary people that represent a minority current in US society and do not represent the feelings of the majority of Americans, how is it that group of people is going to have uh, you know, absolute control over what happens on workers' rights, what happens on, on the future of unions, what happens to women's rights, and what happens to environmental regulation and other corporate uh, you know, regulation questions? How is it that a small reactionary group can have that control? The Democratic Party did not take up that question as a whole, which if it had, rather than just making it about sexual harassment, they could have really whipped up a broad section of their base who are angry about their economic realities, angry at the fact that uh, the, you know, the middle class jobs and the union jobs that were lost through NAFTA, through the recession, are not coming back, and um, a whole section of US society is being condemned to low wage jobs. The Democrats have not fought against the Trump tax cuts, which uh, which were massive, 
They were historic in size. You know, last November, the big tax cuts and another wave of tax cuts earlier this year. The Democrats have failed to uh, respond to the collapse of the family wage jobs by putting forward demands like a major green public works program to fund housing, crumbling infrastructure, and so on. Instead, relying on very superficial questions like we have you know, many women running or we have many number of people of color running and so on. And just uh, refusing to understand the desire of the, the burning desire of their own electoral base to defend the agenda of the right. Just to give an example of this, right after uh, it was clear that the Democrats are going to take control of US, uh, the, the House, US House, at a meeting of donors and strategists, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is by all accounts probably going to be the new leader of the House again, uh, she said that uh, you know, rather than claiming a victory against Trump and the right wing and using it to herald a new shift, not that we expected it, but I'm just making a point, uh, a new shift against the right wing agenda, against the billionaire agenda, Nancy Pelosi promised that Congress, now that the Democrats have won the majority in the House, she promised that Congress would now function as a, quote, bipartisan marketplace of ideas, unquote. And, in, and if you live in the United States, you know bipartisan means in Wall Street wins, ordinary people lose. Because bipartisan means that the Democrats and Republicans, despite their key differences on social issues, both of them colluding with each other to defeat the working class agenda. So, I mean, I think that is, that is an underlying factor to, uh, to see what is going to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the indication, and here, here is a, another point, an indication of how deep the anti-Trump sentiment is that despite the milk toast and lackluster agenda that mo many Democratic establishment candidates ran on, still the Democratic Party was able to flip seven governor positions, including in some key mid Midwestern states like Illinois and Michigan, and some particularly noxious reactionaries lost, including the famous union buster Scott Walker in Wisconsin. And this is a very important thing for the labor movement because some of you may remember uh, a few months before the Occupy movement broke out in the spring of 2011, there was a public sector uprising in Wisconsin that didn't win, again, because of the um, you know, betrayal of the Democrats and the union leaders, but it was at that time that the question of Scott Walker came up, and it is really a sign that people want something different than the Republican and the right wing and a billionaire agenda that he was able to be defeated. The Republicans did expand their Senate majority, but we should remember here that the Senate is far less democratic in its composition, given that every state has two representatives, no matter how small its population. As a matter of fact, you know, it really leads to the questions of, you know, does the, the Senate, the way it is set up, it, it, does it even have a place in even a liberal democracy uh, kind of context? Although, of course, as socialists, we would raise deeper questions of what democracy actually means. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw, we saw the victory of, of course, uh, high-profile democratic socialist candidates like uh, Alexandria and so on. Uh, but we also saw uh, the defeat of uh, a more progressive candidate called Beto O'Rourke in the Seattle Senate race, who was defeated by the odious Ted Cruz. I'm sure those of you who followed the 2016 elections remember Ted Cruz. Um, of course, at that time, it was hard to decide whether Trump was more odious or Ted Cruz was more odious or, Mar or, Mar or Marco Rubio more odious. It was a stiff competition there. <laughs> um, but, we are, but we are seeing that uh, some of the more progressive candidates did lose. And unfortunately, it's a, and I think that's, this is why this discussion is important, that we have these discussions all over the world, actually, because what analysis you d derive from what happened in the midterm elections is important because it was neither a decisive Republican route of the Democrats, nor was it a decisive blue wave for the Democrats. So what should you decide from this? And uh, predictably, the, uh, the bourgeois media is drawing a conclusion that we wouldn't agree with. And just to, uh, you know, just to provide a, an example of that, you know, the, the fact that the Democratic leadership is now claiming that the outcome of the mid midterm races vindicates their quote-unquote moderate approach. I mean, that's what they are concluding, that it was good that we didn't raise a left-leaning working class agenda. And the New York Times, again, to quote uh, the New York Times, 
quote, the candidates who delivered the House majority largely hailed from the political center running on clean government teams and the promises of incre incre incremental improvements to healthcare system rather than transformative social change. So the New York Times is claiming, and so is Nancy Pelosi, that really what is a winning agenda is to not have a transformative socialist, a social agenda, but just a very minimal incrementalist agenda. And uh, by the defeat of the Florida Democratic candidate, Andrew Gillum, and the defeat of Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who were both some of the most progressive candidates that ran in the Democratic Party races, they say that these two defeats in Texas and Florida show that uh, charismatic and unapologetically progressive leaders actually play into the Republican agenda. This is plainly a ridiculous conclusion from the, Demo uh, from, from the New York Times and from the Democratic establishment. As a matter of fact, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, uh, we would say, had an outstanding result in a state where no statewide race has been won by Democrats in a quarter of a century. This is very important. Uh, and these, that, that race and a number of other races show actually show that the shift to the left seen in big cities and among young people is now spreading to the south. It is not just, you know, we, when, we, when we talk about the victories we've had in Seattle, we often hear, well, that, well, that's Seattle. You know, what about Texas? What about West Virginia? But look at what's happening around us. And, you know, we just talked about West Virginia. Now we're talking about Texas. In Florida, another very important uh, event happened, which is and in the same elections, in the midterm elections, Florida vo voters restored voting rights to 1.4 million uh, you know, residents uh, con convicted with a felony who have already served their time. This is a massive victory for especially African Americans, given the way the mass incarceration system works in the United States, which uh, you know, very decisively, disproportionately impacts the black community and the brown community. And, and actually is used as a way, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tactic for voter suppression without actually passing voter suppression laws. If you say that anybody who's been con convicted of felony never gets to vote, vote again, it means that poor people and black people and Latinos and Asians don't get to vote. A, a big section of them don't get to vote. Um, and uh, you know, all of this is happening as, uh, aside from actual voter suppression that is being engaged in by the Republican Party. Another thing that happened, three so-called red states, Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, voted to expand Medicaid. Medicaid is a state-funded system for people who are below a certain income, and it needs to be massively expanded. It is far from adequate, but it is a lifeline. It is a literal lifeline for poor people who, have, who need basic health care. And so for three red states to have passed this, this is a very important thing. There's also another important thing that happened, especially in light of the tax Amazon struggle in Seattle, which Democrats, you know, we, we won that tax and the Democrats repealed it. I'm, I hope people have heard, heard about that. I mean, the movement won a massive victory. Less than a month after that, uh, the Democratic leadership in Seattle, you know, and the Democratic establishment controls the city, they repealed that tax because they, you know, in a, in a cowardly capitulation to um, Jeff Bezos and Amazon. But as a rejection of that kind of cowardice by the Democratic establishment, three cities in California in this midterm passed a tax on big business. San Francisco passed Prop C, which is the, the biggest measure so far, which is $300 million to fund affordable housing and homeless services, but also Mountain View, which is the Google headquarters, and we just saw one of the biggest walkout by Google workers, that city also passed a tax on big business. And like we were calling the tax in Seattle the Amazon tax, they called it the Google tax. So in, in the same election um, that, um, that we saw these other things happen where Republicans still held on to the Senate, we also saw ordinary working people saying they're fed up with inequality in metropolitan areas and they want a correction to that. So this is very, these are very important developments and, and I won't be able to get into this, but the election results, especially the taxes on big business, the fact that the Democrats took the House because people are tired of Trump, the Trump agenda, all of this are going to be key factors running into next year because socialist alternative faces a massive battle on our hands because we are up for re-election and we know that it is going to be pitch battle, not only between socialists and big business, but the entire working class of Seattle 
and big business because it's a, it's a very clear, the, the battle lines have been drawn, especially with the tax Amazon struggle, the you know, question of where the city should go. So I think the midterm results are a huge confirmation for socialist alternatives analysis that the, the country as a whole, not just Seattle, but the country as a whole is not turning rightwards, but as a matter of fact, is looking for ways in which to fight back against the right wing and the billionaire class, but not finding those ways. So in other words, socialist alternatives analysis is that the key component that is missing in what's happening in US politics is a decisive left leadership led by Marxists and other, and other members of the radical left which can actually show a way forward. And to, uh, you know, to go a little bit more into the bankruptcy of the democratic establishment's agenda, a few examples. And, and, and as I said, you cannot just talk about the democratic establishment without talking about the role of the labor bureaucracy because the labor movement has a key role to play. Which way it goes will have a big impact in the next few years. And so far, again, you know, as, as we saw from West Virginia's example, there is a divide between what rank and file want as a whole and what labor leaders are doing. So just to give one example of that, there was a very key race in the Bay Area, you know, near San Francisco, a state race uh, between Jovanka Beckles, who was a Democratic Socialist of America candidate, and Buffy Wicks, who, is, uh, who was an establishment candidate and who had massive amounts of money poured into her campaign through independent expenditures uh, by big business, by charter school proponents. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much people in London know about this, but charter schools are really a way of a systematic sort of um, attack on teachers' unions and on the public sector unions as a whole. And so big business supports charter schools. Ordinary people, unions, we don't support charter schools. Obviously, we support, uh, you know, uh, public schools with full union rights for the teachers and the staff. Um, but in this race, uh, the, the, the leading Democratic candidate, they were both Democrats. Jovanka Beckles also ran as a Democrat, but she was a Democratic Socialist of America candidate who had a very left-wing program. She supported the rent control agenda in California, whereas Buffy Wicks was, you know, is, is sort of, you know, openly more, like, more superficially left-leaning but really a big business candidate, especially if you looked at uh, what entities were pouring money into her race. But what's key about this is that the Democratic establishment pulled out all the stops to defeat the progressive candidate. This was not a race, that is why I'm mentioning this, because this was not a race between a Democrat and a Republican, where the question was, well, if you don't vote for the Democrat, the right wing will win. No, this was a race between an establishment and centrist Democrat and a left-wing Democrat supported by, uh, you know, um, by socialists, by DSA members, and uh, our organization, Socialist Alternative, also which lent critical support, be, uh, although making it clear that we don't agree with the idea of running in through the Democratic Party. But what was key also in this race is that two big unions, the United Farm Workers and the United uh, uh, Federation of Commercial Workers, which, is, which represents many tens of thousands of grocery workers. I mean, these are some of the biggest unions in, um, in Washington state and in California, these two big unions stood with the establishment Democratic candidate. So I think this is the question to raise. You know, if we want to defeat Trump, that is not the way to go because that is not what ordinary people will support. And unless there's a real left-wing alternative, a real fighting program that people can fight, fight on and not just about electing a person, then um, many of these uh, you know, working class layers could become fodder for the Trump agenda, even though they don't agree with it. So I think that the uh, overall outcome you know, shows that that, that, that that is not good enough. Another example I think is really important to give is what happened in Missouri. Missouri, again, if you ask most Americans, they will say, well, it's a right-wing state. We don't say that. It, it is, it is, you cannot dismiss uh, states as red or blue anymore. Uh, what happened in this state, in this election, is very critical to understand why the democratic establishment's approach is not going to work in defeating the right. Uh, there was one senator who was up for re-election, democratic senator, powerful woman, she was an incumbent, her name is Claire McCaskill. <coughs> I mean, she was powerful enough that she was in the same stratosphere as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, one of the big, big shots of the democratic establishment. And you know, when, when someone is that powerful, you know, it should be inconceivable that they would win their, they would lose their race. But she did. She lost the race 
to a no-name Republican in that state, and she, rather than take up a working-class agenda that would push back against a Republican candidate who also was supported by Trump, rather than talk about the lost jobs through NAFTA, you know, just the denuding of the working-class layer in that state, uh, along with other states, rather than that, what she did was what the Democratic establishment does, which is when the Republicans turn more, you know, ramp up their right-wing agenda, the Democratic establishment thinks they have to move more to the right in order to win voters over for them. But that is not the way to go, because what happens then is that you give people a choice between the real right-wing and right-wing light. That is not a real choice, because if people are really being uh, you know, being sort of sucked into a right-wing ide ideology because they don't have an alternative, then why would they choose the right-wing light? They would choose the more what, what seems like a much more decisive leadership where the Republicans are like, you know, just declaring their positions on conservative issues, unlike the Democrats who are being sort of, uh, you know, being hesitant on, on every level. And so uh, what we saw was Rather than uh, you know fight on a working class basis, Claire McCaskill, this senator, she in the in the final days of her election, you know, trying to resuscitate her dying campaign, she instead released radio ads that um, that supported Trump's agenda against immigrants. And the radio ad said, "Claire McCaskill is not one of those crazy Democrats," meaning she's not one of those rabidly left wing people. Don't worry, you can vote for her. But that strategy completely failed, and she lost. And the reason this story is important, and I went into it a, in a little bit, is because this is the same state in Missouri that voters in the same election on Tuesday night also voted in an increase in the minimum wage. So imagine, this is the so-called state that we, people pull out their ballot and they vote yes on minimum wage increase and no on the Democrat, and yes on the right-wing Republican. What does that tell us? That tells us clearly that there is a missing component of left-wing leadership. And there's another thing that's important about Missouri. In August, in the special election in August, the voters of the same state voted against, in overwhelming numbers, voted against right to work, which is a blatantly anti-union policy. So this is, this, is, we, this is why we have a completely different analysis than the bourgeois media like New York Times, where we conclude that really the task ahead is to push back against the right wing by really building a serious left alternative. And this is a growing understanding among hundreds of thousands of people that we need a political force to fight for ordinary people just as hard as Trump is prepared to fight for the interests of the billionaires and the right wing. And the, the, the results that Bernie Sanders' primary campaign got also should be a reminder for us that we can, we can, we can, we can, you know, we can work on this. But a, but a very important point, and this I will end on this, is uh, the the um, gaining the clarity about what is the political vehicle for this kind of agenda. If we agree that we need a fighting left working class agenda to defeat the right, then I think we also have to have serious discussions on whether or not the Democratic Party will be a, 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 an effective vehicle for this. Socialist alternative doesn't think that it is, but at the same time. We do not make the mistake of isolating ourselves from the millions of people, especially young people, who call themselves democratic socialists, who are members of DSA. As you all know, DSA membership has exploded beyond belief. Many of these people are genuine people who want to test it out, who want to test out running through the Democratic Party, but are in no, but you know, and so this is lesser evilism in some sense, but it is not lesser evilism as in they're just going to accept whatever happens beyond that. No, these are people who are serious about building an alternative, but they want to test, it, test this out. So we have, uh, we have a very friendly and frank approach towards them where we clarify that we don't believe that running as a Democrat is going to win, but we, are, but we don't distance ourselves from this. Just, just today, just yesterday actually, Socialist Alternative published a public letter of solidarity and congratulations to uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Salazar, and Clive, who, you know, who uh, three self-proclaimed socialists who have won, uh, explaining that we think their elections herald the possibilities of real change, but for that real change to happen, that they will have to fight against the democratic leadership in Congress and in the state legislatures, and that if they end up choosing a route of compromise with the democratic leadership, then that they will, whether they want to or not, end up betraying 
what ordinary people need. And we have raised the question of a real party, an independent party, an independent political organization for working class people in the US who want to fight for against economic injustice. They want to fight against oppression. And uh, we feel that such a party needs to be based on mass social struggle, which I think is the only real way the right can be defeated and serious gains can be won. So aside from Seattle in 2019, we will see almost certainly see another wave of struggle next year nationwide. Labor struggles will be a big part of it. I just heard from Google workers that they, uh, they, while they won one of the demands that they went on strike for, they are extremely unhappy at the meetings that they've had with the CEO and other corporate leaders, that there's a growing impatience among those work tech workers as well. So I think we will see uh, very likely, I mean, they, they, they also have to learn political organizing and it is still one-on-one at, at which they're at. But I think, uh, I mean, as a former tech worker myself, it gives me great hope because this is a sea change from even five years ago with really well-paid tech workers, you know, fighting for something different. So I think we should prepare for 2009 to be a year of even more heightened struggle. If economic collapse uh, happens, then it will cut across somewhat the mood for struggle but only temporarily and not uniformly at that. So we should be preparing our forces and really explaining to uh, people that you know wh what we need is a certain kind of clarity. And in the US, the socialist, socialist alternative is pointing to the failures of Syriza in Greece, which was tested after over a dozen general strikes. You know, Syriza was tiny before the crisis, then became the ruling party, but then failed because of their very fundamental misunderstandings of how you actually fight against the capitalist class. And alongside that failure of Syriza, you saw the rise of Golden Dawn, the fascist party. So we are pointing out, in the United States, we are pointing out to these historic failures that shows the bankruptcy of reformism, the need for a party for working people, but not stopping there, the need for uh, revolutionary socialist ideas and a revolutionary party. And so in that context, I would say that the role of socialist alternative in the coming period in the United States is absolutely crucial. And so I really appreciate having discussions here to take them back to the US. Thank you. Thank you, Sharma. Uh, 